The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm glad to have you all along with me tonight. We have a fantastic discussion on tap for you. John Fraser will be here tonight to talk about poltergeists. He's written a new book about this phenomenon. And you know that anytime we get to talk about spirits haunting ghosts, poltergeists, whatever it happens to be in that genre, I get excited about it. Because it's the roots of the program, it's the roots of my work in the paranormal, and it's uh, just darn right interesting. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. Uh, What else do I have to... Oh, just please subscribe to the YouTube channel, please subscribe to the Twitch channel, both or either. And if you're a podcast listener, please subscribe to the podcast. I also always encourage you to share it with your friends. Throw it up on your social media. Let people know about the program and introduce them to the program. Uh, I'm, I'm certain that you know people that are interested in these topics, that are interested in the same things that we're all interested in. And uh, share, so share, share the links. Let people know. And, of course, if you go back into the archives, whether it's on YouTube or the podcast archives, you can find uh, some um, you know, of your favorite episodes and share those specifically. You know, and tonight will end up being one of those favorites. I promise you. Um, our guest is in the UK. He is, uh, as he mentioned in our chat room, getting a strong cup of coffee because it's just about. Actually, I think we just crossed the four a.m. mark for him. So we we applaud his uh, extra effort and um, commitment to being on the program. He had to get up special, uh, specially early for this discussion, and we all appreciate it, and we'll let him know how much we appreciate when we bring him in. So we'll go to break, and when we come back, we'll have our guest, John Fraser, on the program. It's Beyond Reality, and tonight is going to be all about ghosts and poltergeists on the show. Looking forward to this conversation. Hey, gang, JV here. You know that great nutrition can lead to a great life. Healthy, happy, rewarding. But that nutrition simply cannot be found in the foods we eat alone. Take a minute and assess your health, the way you feel, the way your family feels, the way your kids feel. Health is more than just feeling well. It's also making sure you have a strong immune system, especially in these trying times. Vitamins aren't enough alone. In fact, they have to be the right vitamins, the right supplements made from the most effective ingredients. Otherwise, they don't do the job. It makes the world of a difference. There's a new website you can visit that'll help you navigate these ideas and guide you to better health. There's no obligation. Just visit MyHealthRocksNow.com. That's MyHealthRocksNow.com and start feeling better today. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. And we're excited to have John Fraser on with us tonight. John is a paranormal researcher. He's written a new book called Poltergeists. Uh, Poltergeist, a new investigation into destructive haunting. John, welcome to Beyond Reality. It's a real honor to have you with us tonight. This is going to be a fascinating discussion. It's a pleasure to be on your show, and um, thank you for inviting me. I have to say, uh, anytime someone is willing to get up in the wee hours of the morning (laughs) to do an interview, I know that's somebody who's dedicated to their work. So thank you uh, for being that dedicated and being here. Oh, it's a, it's a, it's a pleasure. It's um still dark outside, but um uh, I've had my cup of coffee and um 
the um, uh, caffeine is starting to kick in. I tell you, that helps a lot. It's a magic elixir for sure. Now, um, I think you mentioned it's something like about 4 a.m., maybe four, little quarter after four at this point in the U.K. That's right, yeah, yeah. How did you get started with this? I mean, all of us have a bit of a history when it comes to our interest in whether it's uh, ghosts or it's Bigfoot or it's the Loch Ness Monster or whatever it happens to be. There's a, there tends to be a path that leads us to that curiosity. How did your start? Um, well, I haven't, I didn't see anything or have any amazing paranormal experiences. It was probably when I was a teenager, I I was into horror films and stuff like that. And then suddenly I started coming across books that were taking the whole phenomena seriously. And I kind of became fascinated by that. Um, bought, bought home half the library at one point and um, uh, gradually got involved in it um, and um, uh, joined an organization called ASAP, the Association for Scientific Study of Anonymous Phenomena, which is a wonderfully long name in my late teens, and um, later on joined the Ghost Club and the Society for Psychical Research. Your curiosity and your work in this particular field, what are you hoping to discover? Are you like the rest of us that just want maybe some answers about what happens after we leave this particular lifetime, or is there something deeper that you're looking for? I think what happens after we leave our particular lifetime is pretty deep. Um, but um, uh, what am I hoping to discover? I'd, I'd kind of, I mean, there's a whole there's a whole phenomenon out there that we don't understand. And I think there's two things any paranormal investigator does. First of all, there's a personal quest. You want to convince yourself one way or the other. Um, is it um, um, other psychological reasons? Is it real? Um, if it is real, what is it? Something within you or indeed something that happens to you after, after you die. But um, over and above that, there's the wishful thinking thing that hopefully we can get science, more scientists involved in this and actually get a objective explanation that everybody could understand. But as to whether we'll get the latter in my lifetime, I'm not so sure. Well, have you seen any movement in that direction since you've begun this quest? Uh, and I don't know how many years you've been at it, but it, but certainly long enough to write two very good books about it and uh, long enough to have uh, cons be considered an expert or have some expertise about it. Have you seen any change in maybe the scientific community or even just public perception? Oh, first thing I'd say is there's no out-and-out -out experts um, in investigating the paranormal on the grounds that we're still not 100% sure what it is. But um, uh, if you want to call me an expert, I'm not going to object. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but going on to the scientific community, yes, there have been um, some steps in the right direction. Um, just as an example, uh, in I think it was the late 1980s, um, uh, Arthur Kersler bequested some money to any university that would take up the parapsychology mantle. 
and it took a lot of persuasion for Edinburgh University to take it on. Um, now in the UK, there's probably about nine universities that do do some kind of paranormal res para parapsychology research and um, parapsychology courses. And I think there's probably similar over, over your side in the USA as well. So there is a gradual, um, a gradual bit of progress there. Although we did probably go backwards because when the SPR was first founded in 1882, um, there was um, all kinds of scientists involved. Right. Um, Charles Richet, a Nobel Prize winner, was involved in the French equivalent organization. And you had um, uh, a chap called Arthur Balfour, who was actually president of the SPR at the time and went on to become uh, prime minister of the country. I'm wondering if um, uh, Joe Biden or um, uh, Donald Trump will possibly pop their heads around the door after they've finished doing what they're doing. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I watched most of the presidential uh, candidates debate tonight and not a word of paranormal was discussed. So I might be a, a little pessimistic on what we'll hear from them about this topic. But you brought up a really interesting point. There was a time when much of this was when much of these terms were developed, much of these ideas were formulated when some of the greatest minds in the world, we're actually thinking about these things and working on these ideas. And, you know, people from from scientists and, and philosophers to, you know, someone like uh, Thomas Edison, who was trying to invent a device to communicate with the dead. Uh, there was a time when the greatest minds were almost in concert on this idea. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, that was a time when there was all kinds of scientific um, uh, discoveries, possibly um, ending up with Einstein's um, uh, theory of relativity, which kind of goes beyond what we'd normally understand. And a lot of scientists were thinking they were just one step away from actually um, encompassing paranormal activity into that. Unfortunately, on the whole, they probably didn't quite make that link and it kind of died out as being fashionable for scientists do you think it was uh, it was a, a result of some frustration and as to not make it not to make significant progress in the field that made uh, the scientific community walk away from it or was there some other uh, event that created a rift um that's a tricky one um neither you nor i was around at the time but that's um, true <laughs> but, um, I have been involved for a number of years, but not that not that many. But go, going back, I think it's I think the same problem still probably probably exists today. Um, I mean, I think a lot of scientists were doing their own thing in the subject, and um, probably a lot of disagreement. I mean, we know we know the amount of disagreement there was between, say, Tesla and Edison and all kinds of things, right? Um, and and um, I don't think anyone got around to trying to peer review other people's other people's stuff, or if they did, possibly did so in a overt, overtly critical way. Um, I mean, that is a problem both with the paranormal community and the scientific community. Um, people seem to want to take chunks out of 
other people's work rather than constructively criticizing and building on it. I mean, you can see a lot of it these days in the coronavirus stuff. Somebody somebody thinks they make progress and somebody else tries to rubbish it and right. nobody's, nobody's quite sure of the truth or what or, or if there's a cure out there or if a vaccine's going to work and it all seems rather chaotic. And I think science, science does sometimes work in chaotic ways, especially with something new and controversial. This may be a very simple question to answer. It may be more complicated. I'll let you answer it the way you feel most appropriate. But did religion have anything to do with the uh, split from the scientific community uh, and the paranormal community? Does religion continue to have uh, a lot of influence on uh, the way people perceive what we call paranormal activity? Definitely religion does in a form of spiritualism, which is a bona fide religion. I mean, obviously anyone who is a spiritualist um, believes in a pure afterlife theory and does, does investigate things with a set point of view. I'm not saying they don't investigate objectively, but they start out with a set belief system. So that undoubtedly has a, a great deal of influence and possibly might put off uh, parapsychologists who are possibly looking for potential of other explanations, although it shouldn't. Um, uh, the, the field should be a wide church, as we're talking about religion, that makes a good pun. Um, and, um, and, um, uh, and, and all kinds of people should be involved, from skeptics to spiritualists to scientists, and so long as people are willing to come in with a, an open mind. You had mentioned that in your uh, developing curiosity of these topics, uh, you started kind of with a, with a love or an interest in horror films, which I share that. That's kind of how I started my curiosities as well as a child. Um, but you didn't have any experiences. So uh, given, the, given the fact that you are live in the UK, I assume that you grew up in the UK. The UK is actually quite... Uh, has quite a reputation for having a lot of paranormal activity. Uh, did you see it going around, on around you? Did you have friends or family that had experiences, although you hadn't at that point? I didn't have any immediate friends or family at the time. No, it, it was more of a, I mean, we'd be, we, you know, we've been to the moon. We've, um, uh, we've discovered most things. It was more like one of life's, great mysteries that are still to be resolved and one you can do with a certain amount of limited resources and the um, uh, wish to spend time in haunted buildings. Uh, so it was, more, it was more just the concept of having something unexplained in a, in a day, you know, in, at a time when most things are apparently explained rather than any any one or two events, although the more I have investigated it, if I ever, if I ever talk to strangers and mention I've written one or two books in the paranormal, um, uh, it's amazing the number of stories you will get, oh, I've got a friend who's had this happening to them, mm -hmm. and so on, which shows just how common it is. I, uh, I always have a good time telling um, people about my experience with those 
who come up to me after they found out find out the kind of work I do. And often, you know, you'll get people who come up and say they believe and they'll tell you their story. But the best part of this job is when someone comes up to you and says, you know, I don't believe in any of that stuff. But you know what happened to me when I was 12 years old? My grandfather appeared at the end of my bed. You know, it's it's just it's almost as though they just don't want to accept that they believe. Yeah, no, that's a very interesting thing. And I mean, I mean, to be honest, I, I wouldn't expect anyone who had a fleeting glimpse of something at 4 a.m. in the morning to be entirely convinced. Right. Sure. Um, but uh, because we all know what we're like at 4 in the morning, <laughs> he says at 4.19 in the morning. You sound quite sharp and on your game, John. I'm not going to I'm not going to assume that you haven't done this before. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> you're the earliest so far. Wow. So. Well, that is quite an honor then. Um, when I, I have to go back before we're going to talk a lot about your new book, Poltergeists. Um, but I want to talk about uh, one of your other books, Ghost Hunting: A Survivor's Guide. I find ah, that yes. I find that title very, very interesting. The word "survivor" in there. Tell me how that word is important in the title. It was a, it was a publisher's choice. Okay. <laughs> It's um. Uh, I had a. I had another title which I can't even remember now, which was a little bit more wordy. <laughs> well, I was hoping you weren't going to say to me that you knew some people that didn't survive ghost hunting because that would make me start to rethink what I do. <laughs> but, but 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 nevertheless, I mean, to be fair to the publishers, it, it it is a nice punchy title. I mean, there are there are survivors' guides and all kinds of sure. things which which don't necessarily implicate the fact if you don't read it you're not going to be with us the next day if you know what i mean <laughs> um it, so um uh, it became um ghost hunting a survivor's guide because um uh, my publisher uh deemed it so <laughs> what do you think I, I can't give you a i can't give you a a better explanation of, of that I'm what do you think makes a good ghost hunter or i'll use the phrase paranormal researcher or investigator for that matter um good ghost hunter must have enough mind um uh, ideally should have a bit of training uh must be willing and able not just to spend a night in a haunted place but do a heck of a lot of research into um uh, what they've found and what it might mean i often find they get my my more interesting moments in dusty libraries as opposed to dusty old haunted houses you know trying to piece together other people's experiences now that might be because i don't have too many of my own but nevertheless um uh, it's all about trying to join the dots and make meaning out of what other people have experienced and what you might have been lucky enough to experience as well Based on what you've learned, what you've seen, the evidence you've collected during uh, your investigations and your research, do you have any conclusions as what you think ghosts or spirits actually are? I have some walk. I have some walking conclusions, which are kind of explained in the final chapter of, of um, uh, Poltergeist: A New Investigation into Destructive Hauntings. Um, uh, uh, how do we do this without it being a spoiler? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, there's there's two main philosophies about. I'll call it paranormal phenomena because mm -hmm. I think only, I think I think ghosts and poltergeists very much interlink. There was a 
survey done by one of my colleagues some years back in the SPR, um, Tony Cornell, that um, actually showed out of 500 poltergeist cases, at least a third had um, uh, apparitions chucked in and, um, uh, and uh, partially a separate third had paranormal, you know, ghostly noises put in as well. So the interlink is enormous. Um, so if we're trying to find a theory for that, there's two obvious ones, um, uh, the afterlife theory and um, uh, the possible theory that something within us, uh, we may have some powers within us to create strange paranormal phenomena. Um, uh, I lean slightly more towards the second believe it or not, which probably puts me in a minority, but um, uh, only slightly more because um, uh, this is an open subject. And anyone, say, anyone that says at this stage that they have the entire truth of it is probably just being guided by their own belief system. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that the, although you might be in a minority in that particular uh, school of thought, I don't. I think it's an increasing uh, number of people starting to look at that particular idea and uh, connect those particular dots. It seems to be, at least on this program, we get more and more people talking about that idea as a real possible and uh, a real explanation for this phenomena we've been experiencing for uh, you know since the beginning of mankind. Well, absolutely. Um, uh, as I say, the more the more views are better at this stage. It's um, uh, We've all got our own walking hypothesis. Um, a lot of walking hypotheses tend not to work, but um, uh, but the more the, the more intelligent minds we bring together, the more likely we are to resolve it at some point. Absolutely, good point. Uh, I, I need to know as we kind of wind up how you got into into uh, this particular field of work. Uh, did you have any preconceived notions? prior to starting your research and your investigations that have changed over the course of your work? Oh, yeah, actually, I did. I kind of um, uh, I, I kind of started, and possibly my psychology is still s- skeptical um, because I just can't picture... Well, to be honest, I can't, I can't picture how um, uh, Einstein theory of relativity works. You know, I, if you go in a plane and come down and then you find yourself younger than your father and stuff like that, I mean, right. that blows my mind anyway, but that's apparently true. So, I mean, psychologically, I, I can't get my head around it. But the more I look into it, the more there are genuine experiences from genuine people that have a similarity all around the world, possibly described in different ways. I mean, one of the interesting things about poltergeists is a lot of vampire, a lot of poltergeist cases in Eastern Europe are described as vampire cases and we wouldn't take them seriously. But once you've uh, taken away the vampire froth, you've kind of got a very similar type events to the ones that we kind of recognize as being poltergeist ones. So as, as all around the world, um, very similar, very very similar experiences. I don't think you can just say this is all, you know, this is all people deluding themselves. There's too much consistency. There is probably something very interesting going on. So I've got to that stage. 
when we think about the uh, the concept that maybe much of this, and again, I'm not talking specifically about poltergeist activity at this point. We will get into that. But just the general paranormal phenomenon, when we start to think about this as something that might be internalized, are we talking about something that we're... we're uh, and I don't want to say imagining because that sounds like it's, you know, it's it's not real. And I don't mean that, but it's something that's that we're seeing in our mind's eye. Or is it something that we're, we might be projecting? And I know there are no answers to this per se, but I'm looking for your thoughts. Well, if, it, if it's something we see in the mind's eye, it's obviously got a easy psychological explanation. But no, I mean... The reason I was chucking poltergeists in is because there's such an overlap. Um, everyone talks about ghost hunters. Right. Um, if there was a, um, if it was being externalized uh, and it was paranormal, it would be something far more akin to what they call in the Far East as being a tulpa, a kind of thought form that's produced right. by, um, uh, you know, by by people but if you like, gets a life of its own. Uh, so no, no. I mean, there's. I mean, there is a possible psychological explanation, but um, uh, but the paranormal one that doesn't involve the af- afterlife would be very similar to the tulpa, which again is reproduced in various other um, uh, parts of the world under different names as well. Again, your new book is called Poltergeist: A New Investigation into Destructive Hauntings. Let's start from the very beginning here. What is a poltergeist? I mean, many people, their only exposure to the word or the idea is the Steven Spielberg film from whatever year, 1980, whatever it was. Uh, but when we use the word poltergeist, what are we talking about? No, well, first of all, I can I can guarantee poltergeists do not come out of your television. <laughs> um, unlike the Steven Spielberg movie, which was otherwise a very good movie. Yes, it was. Um, uh, well, I... I, I do actually, I do actually question what is a poltergeist in my book because most people have compartmentalized it as being a sort of entirely different type of paranormal phenomena to ghosts and spirits and and so on. Um, I actually think it is just one um, uh, one symptom of the whole paranormal thing. I think there's, I think people try to put the paranormal into too many separate boxes. Um, what makes a poltergeist interesting or the poltergeist part of the phenomena interesting is the fact that um, it is far more provable and far more objective than a fleeting sighting of, say, your grandfather at the bottom of your bed at 4am in the morning. Um, it's the it's stuff that scientists could get there. Um, teeth into because it's the stuff that involves moving things around, having things disappear in different places, having wrappings appear, wrappings sounding on your walls, often making intelligent noises, occasionally having pools of water appearing from nowhere, and very, very occasionally small fires. Uh, so it's the spectrum of paranormal phenomena that is actually provable. Um, which is an entirely different sort of explanation to ones that you would get from most people. But that's probably why I thought it was worth rushing up on the subject, because there haven't been many books written about it in the last 20 or 30 years. You used a word, I think I heard it correctly, you said persistent. Is poltergeist activity more persistent than, say, other types of paranormal activity? 
uh, when you get an intense poltergeist case, yes, it is probably more persistent, yes. Um, if you have a, a house in which paranormal activity is taking place, I think it's probably only occasionally you'll see a fully formed spirit, whatever you want to call it. But um, in an intense poltergeist case, you will get um, a lot of things apparently happening quite often over a short period of time. They don't necessarily have a great deal of longevity, although some do. But yes, certainly, if you go into an active poltergeist case, there is a reasonably good chance something strange will happen. Let me ask this in another way, just because I want to encapsulate the answer a little more succinctly, and I'm sure you addressed it in your first answer here. Uh, but what's the difference between, say, uh, uh, um, just a run-of-the-mill ghost slamming a door shut versus a poltergeist slamming the door shut? There isn't. That's a, that's that's the whole thing. Um, uh, there is no difference between a run-of-the-mill ghost slamming a, do a door shut and a poltergeist slamming a door shut. What you would call a haunting is maybe when you only get one door slamming and then maybe other visual phenomena. What you would call a poltergeist case is maybe when you would get one bit of visual phenomena and door slamming nightly. It is purely, in my opinion, uh, the exactly the same thing, just different spectrums of the same phenomena. When you decided to write this book and you turned your focus and your attention and your research to the poltergeist phenomena, how did you set out to uh, gather information and start to uh, you know assemble your facts as it as it relates to the poltergeist phenomena? Oh, both both books I've written like kind of. I, I don't mean about themselves, like in any paranormal way, but um, I, I, I suddenly found there was a load of material, um, both done from people I know and um, experiences that I had had in investigations that probably hadn't seen the light of day. I mean, there's um, a lot of very interesting research done by a chap called Barry Colvin into poltergeist wrappings, which have had um, coverage in one or two journals, but certainly to a large extent haven't hit the general public in the sort of way I think they should. So there was all kinds of research from other people and all kinds of research I'd done myself. And I kind of looked at it one day and thought, there's a book waiting to be written there. It wasn't so much I started to, you know, I, I sat down and decided to write it. It was more the fact that it was there to be written. That makes sense. No, it does. Uh, sometimes uh, there's an automatic dread when you start talking about poltergeist activity. Uh, people, uh, I would say, on general, are probably a little more fearful of having to experience poltergeist phenomena versus just a, a regular haunting phenomena. Is there a reason to believe poltergeist activity based on some of the things that you you ex talked about? Uh, you know, water showing up unexplained, uh, fires maybe. Uh, other other types of physical manipulation. Is there a reason to believe poltergeist activity is dangerous? Um, it's probably I'd I'd I'd, I'd call it um, 
on the higher end of the spectrum unpleasant. The fires are actually very, very rare. I, I mentioned that because I think there's been an interesting case, well, there has been an interesting case in the USA recently, the Bothell Hell House, Keith Linder, um, which there were a couple of um, uh, um, uh, fires appearing. That is actually very rare. If you are having any minor poltergeist activity, don't expect fires. Um, now, um, I, I mean, certainly, cer certainly in the paranormal spectrum, something suddenly flying across the room is probably a bit more invasive sure. than just seeing, seeing something, yeah, some kind of apparition for a few seconds. So yes, I mean, by, by its definition, poltergeist activity is more disconcerting. Uh, I don't know of any really proven cases where any long-term harm has been done to people. Um, at the very worst, a couple of scratches and bruises and things like that, um, which is not pleasant. But no, I wouldn't say poltergeist activity is per se dangerous. We have uh, a lot of questions scrolling through our chat room as well. I want to try to pepper these in as I can. Um, one of our listeners asks, what gives poltergeists so much more energy than a typical haunting? Is it some external factor like limestone, running water, or is it just a more powerful entity? Well, I'd, I'd, I'd answer that first of all, saying yes. Um, uh, I, do, I do think they're one and the same thing, but obviously there's some more powerful cases and less powerful cases. Um, a chap in the Society for Psychical Research called Lambert in the 1950s did a survey of poltergeist cases and found that um, uh, I think 70% of them with it were within two or three miles of a major source of running water um, uh, and um, uh, about two-thirds of them started out in the wet wintry months so there is definitely a potential um, uh, catalyst of water there Limestone, I've heard about anecdotal, anecdotal, I can't do that one at four o'clock in one second, <laughs> <laughs> anecdotally, um, and it's something I'm actually looking at um, since I actually started the book, because um, your, your questioner isn't the first person to actually mention that. Uh, there's certainly poltergeists that, um, interesting case in called Langenhoe Church in Essex, that, um, had a lot of poltergeist activity after a fairly major earthquake for the UK in the late 19th century. So there did seem to be a number of geophysical and um, uh, environmental, um, environmental factors that do trigger it off. Yes, absolutely. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the history of poltergeist activity. Uh, we know that there are references to ghosts and other paranormal phenomena as you know, far back as uh, recorded history can provide us. Uh, at what point do you, did you start to see, or has, has anybody else who has researched this, start to see activity that you would define as poltergeist activity? And when was the term poltergeist uh, started to use commonly? Oh, second question. Um, I believe that was 19th century. I mean, poltergeist is straight German translation for noisy ghost. Right. And I believe I believe it was like in the early stages of the 
Rules Club being set up and the Society for Psychical Research and the American Society for Psychical Research. It's, it, it became termed, I'm not 100% sure about that, by the way, so if, if I'm wrong, um, um, anyone out there do tell me. But um, uh, with regards to when we had poltergeist cases that started to be recorded, I mean, they go back uh, right through right through history to be honest um there was a interesting case called the drummer of tedworth uh which um uh, in, in which there was lots of drumming noises in the house very much like poltergeist rapping that was in the 17th century uh it was written up as under the category demonology because that's how they perceive things in those days, but has much more in common with the poltergeist incident. And the um, colleague I was talking about in the SPR in the 1970s, that, uh, who investigated 500 cases, many of them were historic from around the world, um, going back 19th, 18th, 17th, 16th centuries. So yes, they have always been amongst us. So it's not a modern phenomena. It's a phenomenon that's always been there, which is why I think it's even more convincing that there is no obvious natural explanation. Uh, you brought up uh, demonic activity, and there's a few different questions that I have as it relates to that. Uh, one of the questions, again, coming from our chat room, is where do demons fall into this hierarchy, uh, especially given the fact that, as you just said, much early uh, poltergeist activity may have been uh, explained as demonic activity uh, at the time. And when we start to introduce this idea of demonic activity as actually being poltergeist activity, we it seems like that expands this timeline significantly since, you know, again, demonic activity has been discussed, whether it's through biblical history or other uh, types of uh, antiquity. Um, it brings us back many, many thousand years. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, I mean, first question I'd ask is, what are demons? I mean, right. uh, are, are we are, are we taking the, um, um, if you like, the Judeo-Christian view that there are you know, nasty entities out there whose pure purpose is to take us away from, you know, the, the, the right path and, so, path and so on? Right. I don't find, I don't, because we don't really know for sure what demons are i don't find them very helpful um in fact i would recommend whatever your view whatever your religion if you are trying to investigate a poltergeist case do not go in and call yourself a demonologist because that will change the entire psychology of the victim and possibly if it is something within us, make the case worse. So I, I mean, there is, I will, I mean, there is a possibility that external entities are, are causing it. I would not think it helpful to call them demons because we don't know what they are. And um, poltergeists, uh, in all the activity they show. Um, seem to behave far more like a mischievous two-year-old than like a sophisticated demon. So unless your demons are actually age two and doing temper <laughs> tantrums, um, I don't think they have much place 
in in um, uh, in poltergeist investigation. But the really important point is, even if you think differently, it's um, uh, not a good word to use because it overcharges the situation. Uh, you made a very uh, poignant point, uh, both in scheduling this discussion with me and also um, in, in your biographical information that you, you never would call yourself a demonologist. Uh, is that because of what you had, what you just pointed out, that when you introduce yourself into a situation as a demonologist, immediately everyone who's experienced this phenomena takes a different mindset to the whole phenomena? Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, I think the scientific term is it freaks them out. Right. And I mean, at the end, I'm, I'm, I'm being a little bit flippant there, but at the end of the day, um, whilst you're there to try and find out the truth of the matter, you're also there to um, uh, give people who are being very disconcerted which is probably an understatement in some cases, um, some kind of reassurance. And going in and calling yourself a demonologist is likely to do entirely the opposite. Uh, so, no, I would not. Um, I know some quite well paranormal researchers in the USA have called themselves demonologists. I would not recommend that. I, uh, I We may be stretching this conversation into areas that we... we you might not want to talk about, but I'll ask the question. You decide whether you want to answer it or not. Uh, in talking about demonic activity and poltergeist activity, and we've already made the connection that maybe much what, uh, what have in the past what has been defined as demonic activity might very well just be a poltergeist uh, type phenomenon. However, there are some people, and whether it's legitimate or not, claim to be possessed. There are people who say. Uh, they know people that are possessed. They have exorcisms to exercise those uh, demons that are possessing people. If there is a gray area there between poltergeist activity and demonic activity, can any of these quote unquote possessions be explained by talking about poltergeist activity? Uh, they, I would, I would think they can be. Not so, not 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 so much by poltergeist activity. I mean, possessions are either um, entities entering the mind or, um, uh, or or some kind of split personality, um, which is something that was established oh, probably about sixty or seventy years ago. I mean, split personalities do exist. When you say split uh, personality, are you talking about a me the the mental illness variety? Is that what we're talking about? Some. We would be talking. We would be talking about the mental condition. Yes. I okay. I don't actually. Okay. I don't actually like the. That's fine. The term, term mental illness. But yes, I mean, yes. Um, so I mean, it, it would be. It would be one or the other. Um, I don't think um, exorcisms and poltergeists have a huge. I'm trying to think if there are where any cases where somebody who claimed to be possessed was actually creating and somebody showing the real symptoms of being possessed was were actually creating poltergeist phenomena. The overlap isn't great, I think. Now, I mean, with regards to exorcisms, um, um, if a certain process, um, whether it's blessing a haunted house or having a religious a benign religious ceremony because there are some in some religions that you know um, uh, that um, uh, are not benign. But if there is a benign religious religious ceremony that um, uh, calms the situation down, I wouldn't I wouldn't immediately exclude somebody doing it. I'm sure. not qualified to do it. But um, uh, so but 
I wouldn't necessarily think that benign religious ceremony is definitely taking away an evil spirit. I mean, can't can't exclude that, but that wouldn't be my favoured. If 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 and when you re people read the book, which I hope they do, I, I think you'd see why I'm pushing on an alternative explanation to that sort of thing. But yes, I wouldn't I I, I wouldn't exclude a a a properly conducted religious ceremony that. Um, uh, that somebody finds comforting and alleviates whatever symptoms they have. We're going to take a break in just a moment. Before we do, um, what about geographic concentration? Is there any place in the world that seems to have a greater uh, propensity or uh, appearance of poltergeist activity than other parts of the world? Is there any concentration whatsoever geographically? Probably impossible to say because it all depends how how and when they're reported in countries in countries where people think you're absolutely bonkers are probably underreported. Um, uh, in countries where they've kind of become fashionable, they're probably they're probably reported more. I mean, I suspect there's a lot of poltergeist cases where people just get on with it. So I would say it's probably impossible to say that. Our guest tonight is John Fraser. We're talking about his book. The book is called Poltergeist, A New Investigation into Destructive Hauntings. John, um, let's talk a little bit about uh, your your work in Transylvania and how that relates to your research on poltergeists. Well, I am uh, in about two... in about the year 2000, um, uh, when I was vice chair of investigations of the Ghost Club, we kind of thought we'd investigated quite a lot of haunted houses in the UK. And um, we were kind of fascinated to just try and look at um, legends and folklore further afield. So we decided to go to Transylvania, as one does. Um, uh, now, that was just about a decade after communism fell. So we... Um, uh, um, we got on the internet, and one of our um, uh, one of our organisers um, found this interesting organisation called the Transylvanian Society of, of Dracula. Mm. Um, uh, fascinating in itself, sure. Which was actually founded by the original communists that introduced um, uh, introduced um, a. Dracula tours into um, uh, Romania in the first place, and since then they had actually become fascinated by folklore themselves and and the paranormal, and um, it was probably through my contacts with them that I started to get some idea that in different cultures, um, uh, poltergeist phenomena is. Uh, described as different things. Um, now, the interesting thing about Transylvania and the rest of Eastern Europe is that um, they're obviously Christian Orthodox as opposed to Catholic or Protestant. And Christian, Catholic and Protestants tend to, tend to think of um, incorruptible bodies as being saints. There's quite a lot of examples of, of religious people whose bodies didn't corrupt or have become saints. But in Christian orthodoxy, um, it's immediately a sign 
that you're in some way possessed or your body is in some way possessed demonically. So that's kind of um, occurred to me that is why, I mean, vampires are basically incorruptibles that have the added addition of going around sucking people's necks, at least the way it's been translated over here. Right. They're, far more, they're far more simple concepts in, in, in Transylvania. But um, it's kind of why um, when something really strange happens, um, uh, we might call it demons, but they, because they have a demonic, con a de de demonic concept of an, in you know, an incorruptible, they would um, uh, start calling them vampires. But I mean, if you look at if you look at some well-recorded vampire cases, I think there was a case in Greece, which is also Christian Orthodox. You've got the you've you've got something that's called a Vakloklas, which is a Greek vampire. But um, uh, this particular case I'm thinking of, the Vakloklas went around um, uh, making lots of noises, um, knocking over the pots and pans, and basically behaving like a poltergeist. Mm -hmm. And it was actually through my, oh, in the end, about six or seven trips to Transylvania that I kind of got to know the culture and came up um, uh, with that idea, which is, an idea that's shared by others by a chap called Richard Suggs, who's um, uh, a lecturer at Durham University. So it's an idea that's got some um, uh, some kudos over and above, over and above me, me pushing it. And it does kind of show that throughout the world, um, the concept is described in different ways. I mean, if you go to Colombia and parts of Latin America, I think they talk about... Um, poltergeist activity type activity is being duande, which is basically translated as goblins. So when we hear the goblin stories of Colombia, we don't necessarily take them seriously. We think they're folklore, but um, uh, because we don't, it's kind of cool to go ghost hunting, but not really cool to go goblin hunting. Um, uh, at least not yet. But but really, all these stories about duandes are just. Um, are just entities throwing stones and doing things that you would expect poltergeists to do. So that's why travel the world and you'll find poltergeists called different things. Talk about the connection between poltergeist activity and uh, teenage or pre-teenage girls. Uh, this is something that's been talked about a lot as there, uh, there's some kind of connection, there's some kind of energy that seems to uh, connect the two. Is that something that you found to be true? And if so, talk about it a little bit. Kind of yes, no. Um, I, I think if there is a trigger for poltergeist activity, it seems to be a stress trigger something stressful happens in your life it could be a loss of a job could be a loss of a loved one which um which is an alternative explanation for the um for the afterlife obviously because the two connect up but when something really stressful happens in your life it's just possible that there's a stress ball of energy builds up and is conveyed in very unexplained and mysterious ways now if you go back to um uh, uh pubescent teenage girls and boys for that matter because it's there's some history of it happening with both sexes 
Um, can you think of a more stressful time in your life than between the ages of, say, 13 and 17? Um, uh, there's a lot happening, a lot of body changes, a lot of personality changes. And I would say it is not per se the fact that the person is pubescent, but the fact that they are undergoing a lot of stressful changes that is probably the trigger. So it's not so much the age or the sex of the individual, but again, it's circumstances in their life that may be creating stress, and that stress energy manifests itself either through a projection from the person mm -hmm. or by an entity pulling that energy from the person. Correct. I mean, there's lots of... Um, uh... There's a particular famous case in Germany that actually involved a 19... I'm trying to remember the name of it. It's so famous. Sorry, I'm, uh, uh, another cup of coffee required. Rosenheim, <laughs> uh, uh, Rosenheim, um, which involved a 19-year-old lady, so we're certainly past a pubescent stage, who had just broken up a... Uh, had a engagement broken off so obviously obviously wasn't in the best state of mind she walked into the the law office where she worked and um uh, basically uh, all the electric lights started popping um and i think a large filing cabinet moved several feet and um uh, oh, various other things happened but the stress factor there wouldn't have been you know, the fact that she was pubescent, because obviously you're not at 19, um, but we have been the broken off engagement. But usually when you look at most poltergeist cases, um, Amityville Horror, uh, which mm -hmm. I would argue is a poltergeist case, that's very controversial. Um, uh, what have you got? You have, you have a family going in to the house of a mass murderer, and also a family overstretching themselves on a mortgage. If you're not going to get a stressed out family with those two incidents, <laughs> um, uh, I don't know where you are going to get a stressed out family. The, uh, the, the example you just gave of the 19-year-old uh, woman who experienced a breakup and then had that phenomenon, that isn't the same story as the girl that was dragged up the stairs by her, by her hair, is it? No, that's um, uh, that's a very famous um, uh, black monk of Pontefract, um, uh, poltergeist case in Pontefract, UK, which, um, uh, despite the grand title, almost certainly wasn't a black monk, and actually took place in an average um, uh, an average um, council house. I think you call them social housing over there, um, on the outskirts of Pontefract, uh, in which. Um, Various phenomena, poltergeist phenomena happened, including in one instance, yes, the girl apparently being um, uh, pulled up by her hair up the stairs by the entity. I mean, that that is a level of activity you don't hear about very, very often, um, particularly when, I mean, it almost seems malicious in, the, in that particular case. Well, yes, it is. It is a kind of um, case that did, I mean... Do do you guys know of the author Colin Wilson, um, who wrote a book called Poltergeists? Um, uh, uh, in the nineteen in the nineteen eighties, he actually he actually did quite a bit of research into the Black Monk case, sure. and he actually changed his. He was somebody that uh, 
they've written lots of books about them, the subconscious mind and the powers they have and so on. And he actually flipped his theory halfway through the book based on the case of the Black Monk of Pontifact um, uh, and the possibility of this um, girl being dragged up by her stairs, the stairs by her hair, based on the fact that looked simply at no, no one's subconscious would want to pull yourself up the hair by, you know, right, yourself yeah, up right. the hair by the stairs. Right. And I mean, it kind of has a slight point, but I, I don't think you should flip your theory just on one possible poltergeist incident that was actually described to him about 12 years after it happened. Um, so I do actually spend a chapter revisiting the Black Monk and explaining why maybe he shouldn't have flipped his theory and maybe his theory should be flipped back. When we start talking about uh, this energy coming from within ourselves and being projected as one of the theories that you articulated earlier in our discussion, does that start to uh, have a direct connection to phenomena like telepathy and these other, uh, what we would consider to be uh, psychical uh, disciplines of mind control? It certainly has a direct connection with psychokinesis, you know, the controlled ability to, that some, some mediums apparently have to, to move objects. I mean, I'll give you a good example of this. Um, there's a very famous medium in the UK called Matthew Manning, who started off um, when he was eight, when he was about 10, 11 or 12, um, had poltergeist activity happening in his house. Some um, objects were being moved. Um, his father actually set up traps because he thought it was the kids playing pranks, but um, couldn't pin it down. Then... Then Matthew Manning went to boarding school and all kinds of incidents happened, you know, objects, movements, etc. And at one point he was nearly expelled. Um, but um, as he gradually grew older, he got into automatic writing mediumship and is now a world-renowned healer. So you kind of think um, somewhere down the line he started to be able to control those powers which um, were happening in an uncontrolled fashion. So you've kind of got a really good example there of somebody going from having uncontrolled poltergeist phenomena to controlled potentially psychic powers. And when you've got a example like that, it makes you think the connection is very, very close indeed. The um, the idea of that type of control, uh, obviously something that has been studied, it's been um, uh, practiced. Uh, there are people who, who exhibit those types of controls, uh, and there are those who claim to. Uh, but often the connection between that and what we would call poltergeist activity isn't necessarily a natural connection to make. But what you're saying is they could very, very well be closely related. I'm saying they should could very, very well be closely related, yes. Um, Probably the reason the connection isn't made very often is most most mediums are spiritualists and they have their own belief system, which I totally respect. Um, but their belief system is they are an afterlife communication one, which wouldn't fit quite so well into the continuation theory that I just gave you. So that's probably why it isn't so common. 
but um, uh, nevertheless, when you look at um, cases like that, it does seem to have a certain validity. Um, I mean, I'll, an, an, another interesting case is actually the Philip experiment that took place in Canada in the 1970s, when um, a group of people actually decided to try to create a poltergeist. Um, uh, probably not to be done at home, listeners, uh, <laughs> but, but um, they actually invented a fictitious entity called Philip the Cavalier, um, uh, gave him a history, gave him a wife, gave him a mistress. Um, uh, I think the wife committed suicide because of the mistress, you know, Philip desperately unhappy. I can't quite remember how he died, but um, uh, uh, they drew pictures of him, they lived his life, they spoke about him. And um, uh, gradually, Philip started to intervene and start moving things, moving the tables. In fact, there's an interesting bit of Canadian TV footage in which the group that invented Philip um, uh, seemed to have a ha seemed to have the table. They were um, uh, sitting around um, being moved on camera. So, if you can create an entity that actually then creates poltergeist activity. It's kind of shunting the afterlife theory to one side a little bit. And it shows that we might well have powers within us, which at first we can't control, but maybe later on we can. And you had also used the word tulpa early in our conversation. Is this a form of mm. that? Well, that would be a that would be more a, a thought form that um, is possibly a way of um, creating your own ghost. Um, uh, it's I'll be honest, I'm not an expert in tulpas, but just that when I was scouting the world over for, um, unfortunately, I've I've, I've 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 never been to the countries where they, unlike Transylvania, I've never been to the countries where um, that concept is um, particularly particularly well used but it certainly seems another way of um of um possible paranormal entities being created from powers within us one of the difficulties with anyone who is trying to conduct serious research about this particular topic or a, a difficulty that a family or a person might have in their own home determining whether or not they have a paranormal problem or something far more ordinary uh, is that, you know, people play tricks, people can rap on a, on a door. In, say you're in, a, in an apartment building, they, somebody's doing something in the floor below you, but it sounds like it's coming from behind you, therefore you think you've got a ghost behind you. Is there anything unique or different about, uh, let's say, knocking or, or you know acoustic type uh evidence that comes from poltergeist activity versus something that could be explained far more ordinarily well yes that's the that's the interesting thing i mentioned um uh, i mentioned a chap called barry colvin earlier who's also a member of the society for psychical research um it's a very interesting organization please do consider joining um now he he did a lot of experimentation into, he was lucky enough to get hold of six or seven poltergeist tapes, uh, including the Enfield, the case from Enfield, UK, which I'm sure your um, uh, listeners are familiar with, yes. and quite a lot of other cases from around the world. And they actually analysed the tapes and then tried to recreate the the resonance of the, the sound envelope of the paranormal knocks. Um, now, the... 
and found he couldn't easily recreate them by tapping on the wall or tapping on the table. The main difference being um, being that if I tap on the table like that, mm-hmm. uh, the sound evidence that wasn't a poltergeist. Uh, the sound evidence is the sound envelope immediately goes to peak and then gradually echoes away. But with the poltergeist knocks, it nearly seems as if they're coming from the table. They gradually go to peak and then subside. So there seems to be a real difference in the in the in the envelope and the type of wrap it is. Now. Um, that's really an ongoing experimentation, and I wouldn't say it's it's in any way absolutely proved it yet as yet, but it may be there's a way of um, siphoning out, you know, if this was proved, it would be quite easy to siphon out fraudulent knocks from poltergeist-style knocks. Are those differences ref, uh, represented in waveforms of, of a digital recording? Yes, yes. Um, if you, if if when when uh, when they're in waveforms, it's quite clear that there's a difference between the um, uh, you know, there's there's a big shoot up with a normal knock, and right. there's a gradual gradual shoot up over time, you know, small amount of time with the um, paranormal knock. So yes, you could see that, and if you if you're putting the sound through your through your PC with the right software. Uh, bef- I just want to give you a second here to talk about the Society of Cyclical Research. You encouraged listeners to become a member. Tell us about uh, the group, what it what it's about, and what the advantage of being a member is. Um, SBI was formed eighteen eighty two, so it's been around for a long time. It's actually quite a reasonably well funded group. I mean, we do, we do have staff and. In, in an office in London and so on. We do have quite a lot of international members as well. Um, we have a peer-reviewed journal of cases, so we do actually try to, um, you know, give it a give any give any cases a good going over. Um, we did have an excellent conference um, normally in the UK that unfortunately has been postponed due to COVID. It's probably, and we also have connections with most of the universities in the UK and quite a few of them in America that do take the subject more seriously. So it's kind of a bridge between the paranormal community, the ghost, the ghost hunting groups, um, uh, taps and so on and the um and 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 the scientific community and it makes for quite an interesting bridge so if, you, if you're more seriously involved in the topic it's probably not a bad thing to join at all um you know, all of us go through our lives and um have little experiences along the way M- many cases we wouldn't chalk them up to being paranormal but they could be odd experiences nonetheless could it be that we're all experiencing some of these things and just not recognizing what it is? Yes. Uh, um, yes, because funnily enough, um, I mean, I think you're referring to um, when things disappear and then suddenly reappear. Um, I think most of us have left our keys in the drawer right. and then found they've disappeared. And then three weeks later, they either appear in the drawer even though you've looked in the drawer fifteen times, <laughs> right? Um, or suddenly they you find they're on top of the wardrobe, and you think 
somebody's tricked you and put them there or what have you or what have you and you kind of just shrug the shoulders and put it down as one of those things but um that type of event is actually very common in poltergeist cases which go on to have much more obvious poltergeist types events such as pools of water, things moving, occasional poltergeist scratchings. So if that type of event is very common in poltergeist, at the beginning of poltergeist cases, it is possible, and I would only say possible, that these are minor poltergeist cases in themselves. That um, as they are disconcerting, but no more than that, people just say, they're just one of those things. In fact, a colleague of mine who's unfortunately passed away recently, a colleague called Mary Rose Barrington, who joined the SPR in 1950-something, um, uh, has actually categorised these into various forms and actually called them jots, which is a short way of saying just one of those things. <laughs> so next time you lose a key... Um, have a think about it. <laughs> well, it, it's funny. I'm trying but to. Then, I just had. I had something very similar happen to me just very, very recently, and I can't remember what it was. It may have very well have been a key that I was looking for. Couldn't find it in all the places that I had kept it. I knew it was, you know, in a certain place. It wasn't there, and it turns out. And, and, and I look for weeks, and then all of a sudden, it shows up like sitting on a counter where I would have seen it a hundred times over if it had been there the whole time. It's just bizarre. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's one of those things you just kind of walk away scratching your head. That is that is a typical jot. I mean, yes, why would it suddenly appear in the counter that you've probably passed millions of times? Right. Um, but it's not enough to it's not enough to get the the paranormal investigator then, but it's enough to leave you scratching your head. Um, now, if you think about it, what that really means is if that is low-level poltergeist activity, what it really means is um, what we think of as being a very rare event is actually very common. What do you recommend people do if they have a more significant and more severe poltergeist event going on in the place they live or the place they work, something that might even be frightening them? Um... First of all, conceive of it as a mischievous child, whatever it is, because that way it behaves like a mischievous child. Um, uh, Poltergeists rarely make any sense. Uh, They rarely, I think when they... There's a case in Andover where they communicated. They ended up, they ended up um, giving next week's football results and even giving them incorrectly. <laughs> um, so there's a, but by thinking of it as a mischievous child, you kind of um, can chill out with the fact, to some extent, admittedly, that there are strange things going on in your house. It also by, by by there's a certain amount of evidence by it's kind of counterintuitive but by by accepting it it tends to tends to possibly calm down um because if it does use stress obviously the more stressed you are the worse it gets um obviously there's nothing wrong with contacting a reputable organization 
take care of the organization you do contact. There's quite a lot of reputable organizations out there. There's one or two ones that aren't. Um, uh, and um, there's one or two that mean well, but are very belief led. Um, again, you don't really want somebody coming into your house and saying there's a portal to hell in your dining room <laughs> right. or anything like that. Um, even if the person who's saying it genuinely believes it, it just doesn't add to the experience. Um, most of these cases do tend to die down in a few months. Occasionally, the ones you hear about are the ones that don't, obviously. Um, so uh, I would... I would, it's it's nearly impossible not to be a little bit, dis, I'm saying disconcerted or scared or what have you, but the less you are, the better it is all around. Our guest tonight, John Fraser. John, your book is called Poltergeist, A New Investigation into Destructive Hauntings. You also have Ghost Hunting, A Survivor's Guide. Where can people find your books? Um, uh, they can find the um, the first one's actually about 10 years old and nearly out of print. Um, but um, uh, the one that's just come out, um, uh, you can find it in all in most book, good online bookshops, Amazon and so on, um, Amazon USA, uh, and um, um, just about every other bookshop as well. Um, uh, certainly online. I don't know, have the American bookshops reopened yet? I suppose it depends on the... It depends on where you are. Basis. Yeah, and so on. Um, but it's certainly very easy to get hold of online. Um, uh, it's John Fraser, F-R-A-S-E-R, because I think you normally spell it with an I in the middle in the USA. <laughs> yes, that's correct. Uh, anything uh, in the in the works that you can talk about at this point? You got any new projects? Uh, most stuff has been put on a little bit on hold yeah. because of this this COVID stuff. Uh, but um, if anything, I mean, I mentioned earlier about there being one about me not wanting to compartmentalize ghosts and poltergeists and so on, and thinking there's one big box of the paranormal, um, very interesting box, but just one. Um, I'm actually now wondering how far that can be extended. Um, can it be extended to you? For example, UFO experiences, uh, Bigfoot experiences, assuming there isn't actually a physical animal out there. There, I mean, obviously, if there is, that's an entirely natural thing, anyway. And but a lot of UFO experiences do have certain similarities. Again, assuming that it's not actually physical aliens from another planet, and I'm wondering whether the whole of our esoterical experiences can be put into one big box, possibly a box of the power of the mind. Now, I'm only wondering that at the moment. Um, uh, it, it's involved me making a little trip up to doing a little bit of research on Rendlesham Forest, which is one of our um, more interesting um, uh, more interesting UFO cases. It's often referred to as a um, British Ros Roswell, is it? Um, uh, um, what, sorry, what's that big case you had in the USA, Vos? Which, um, which one? The the big UFO case you had in the USA. Oh, we've had I'm many. Not, I'm not sure. We, uh, yeah, no, are we talking, we're not talking about Roswell. Roswell, yeah, that's Roswell. Right, yeah. Okay, 
yeah, Rendlesham's often referred to as being the British British Roswell. Right, that's right. Um, and um, it's something I'm kind of um, looking into just to see if there's any similarities with regards to the peripheral phenomena. And certainly Rendlesham Forest has a lot of um, um, interesting events predating the UFO sightings, which happened in the 1980s, um, including stones falling out of the sky, which are very typical of being poltergeist activity. So I'm wondering how far this all in, you know, how far we have one paranormal and not lots of differentiating paranormal things. But I'm only wondering about that at the moment. Uh, hasn't got into a working hypothesis. Well, when you get to that point and you either have written or are writing and you want to share some of the information, we'd love to have you back. John, thank you so much for making the effort to get up extra early uh, and thrive on caffeine to be able to do this discussion with us. I know our audience appreciate it, appreciates it, and I certainly do as well. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.